0: Hey and welcome to Vineyard Church Carlos podcast. It is great to have you with us. We have the wonderful Alice Meads, our associate pastor, uh, continuing the Pursuit of Holiness series. We've had loads of people uh, love this series and so if you've been enjoying it, we would love to hear from you of how it is blessing you in your walk with Jesus. But over to Alice. Hello, today I am carrying on our series, The Pursuit of Holiness. And if you're hearing this for the first time, this series is part of our discipleship framework called Live Like Jesus. And this is something that we are going to return to over the coming months and years as we look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, as disciples, we are called to live more and more like Jesus. And we do this by being with him and doing what he did. And there are practices and principles that we can put in place in our lives to help us do these two things. And as we kind of push on these two pedals, be with Jesus and do what Jesus did, there's this transformation process that takes place in our lives. And that... Is what discipleship is. It's a journey of transformation of moving from here to there. And as Jesus' disciples, as his apprentices, there's always this danger that we get stuck. You know that we stop growing, and that's why we're going to keep coming back to live like Jesus. It's not just this one-off series, but as I said, a framework for us to use to help us grow as his apprentices, both individually. And collectively, you know, we want to be a church that is full of folks that take discipleship seriously. You know, not just for our sakes, although there's benefit enough just to do that, but, but for the sake of our city and of our nation and beyond. So as we think about this idea of holiness and what it means to pursue holiness in our lives, you know, to be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1.16, 16. Um, what we're talking about is this transformation process of living lives that increasingly look different to the world around us and more like the God we worship, the Jesus that we follow. So today we're going to be back in 1 Peter, but in chapter two, if you want to turn to it or it'll come up. Here we go. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I'll just pause there. I love that expression, grow up in your salvation. It's a great summary for discipleship. You know, James quoted John Wimber a few weeks ago. John Wimber started the Vineyard Movement and he used to say this, I want to grow up before I grow old. You know, and what he means by that was, you know, I wanted, I want to be a mature follower of Jesus. I want to engage with the discipleship process in a way that deeply transforms me because that is the best way to live. And Peter is talking here about that. In order to do this, we should crave the things of God, the presence of his spirit at work in us. Just like he says, a baby, a newborn baby craves milk. Now, if you've ever seen a baby or had a baby um, and seen them scr- screaming out for milk, you'll know that what they are expressing as they scream out isn't this kind of mild feeling of, oh, I could really do with a drink of milk right now, please, mummy. No, it is an intense, single-minded focus on the one thing that they want, and they want to have it straight away. And if you've ever been around a baby, you'll know that a baby won't stop crying until it gets that milk that it wants. I remember many a frustrated moment, a frustrating moment of rushing to feed my boys when they were newborns as they were screaming out for milk, thinking to myself, I just want this noise to stop. And kind of rushing for that moment where they'd be finally being breastfed so that me and anyone else in the house could just have that sigh of relief. Oh, the noise has stopped and all is calm. That is some craving. And Paul says that is what our hearts should be like, relentlessly craving the things of God, craving his presence, his spirit in that same single minded, determined way in order to be transformed and mature in our discipleship to Jesus, to grow up in our salvation. And what Peter has understood is that the pursuit of holiness is intrinsically linked to a spirit filled life. It is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, that drives the transformation process, that makes us holy. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, May the God of peace make you holy in every way. Or in the second letter to, the, to the Thessalonians, um, chapter 2.13, it talks about a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy. Now, as we'll see, we have a part to play in that process, but it's the Holy Spirit that drives it. You know, it's the Holy Spirit that does the heavy lifting, if you like. It's a bit like when me and my youngest son um, bake together. He loves uh, baking and I love cake. So it's a bit of a win-win in our house. And uh, And when we've made a cake for someone, my son will be pleased as punch with it. You know, he'll be like, look at the cake that I've made. And he'll feel this ownership over it. You know, he's so proud of it. But the truth be told, I'm the one that's done the legwork for the cake. You know, I'm the one that's made sure it's all measured out properly, that I've scooped out any kind of eggshell that's made its way in there. And that's made sure he's washed his hands, Um, who's made sure it's all been stirred through thoroughly. And of course, you know, I'm his mum, so I'm more than happy for him to take the credit, you know. Um, But the truth is, it's me that has overseen the whole process, who's done the heavy lifting. And likewise, we have a part to play in our lives in pursuing holiness. But it's God who does heavy lifting. It's the spirit in us that transforms us to live more like Jesus to make us holy. Now, of course, it is true that as humans, that we have willpower and can, of course, affect and change our behaviours to some degree in order to live more holy lives. That is true. But the level of deep transformation that we're talking about, of living a holy life as he is holy, cannot be the result of mere human effort. It cannot come from just willpower alone. There are some things that go so deep, only the spirit can break it off. Some patterns of behavior, some brokenness at the root of our sinful behavior that goes so deep that we need access to a power outside of ourselves. And it's important that we understand this, because without the spirit, the pursuit of holiness can, at best, you know, be a frustrating experience that doesn't get you very far, but at worst, be a journey down a kind of striving, deadening religious path that actually leads you farther away from Jesus than towards him. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to first convict us of our sin, to bring it into the light and then to lead us into a life of increasing freedom from the entanglement of sin. You know, we spoke a few weeks ago about how there is a massive difference between conviction and condemnation. The Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin. The enemy will condemn us for our sin. You know, the Holy Spirit, if we let him, will shine a light on our sin to let us see it for what it is. You know, an offense to God. That is the reality of our sin. It's offensive to God. Paul spoke about that last week. And of course, that's never an easy place to be in. It's not an easy process. But it is one that if we engage with it, it can lead us towards more freedom in our lives, a chance to move forwards from darkness to light. That is the total opposite of condemnation. Now, anyone, t- anyone that has spent any time with me over the last couple of years will know that I love the author Sharon Garlow-Brown. She came and did our women's retreat last year. You know, I sent her an email thinking, please, it'd be so great. And she said yes, and she did this amazing women's retreat with us. And she has written this collection of books that have just been life-changing for me. They may be written particularly with like a, a female audience in mind, but I think anyone could get a lot from them if you've not read them. And I just want to read a bit from one of her most recent books called Shades of Light. It captures kind of what I'm trying to say, I suppose, far more eloquently than I ever could. There's this moment where one of the characters, a a girl called Wren, she is deeply aware of her sin. It's been the sin of selfishness. She's been putting herself first. And she tells, she speaks to her auntie, Auntie Kit, and she tells her about this and describes how wretched she is now feeling. Now she is thinking about how much she's messed up. And Kit responds to Wren by saying this, that's a beautiful insight. And Ren says, it's a terrible insight. And Kit says, well, it feels terrible, true. But seeing our sin, awful as it feels, is always a work of the Spirit. The enemy doesn't want us to see the truth. He'd rather have us stay in deception and darkness. So when we see the ugliness, we can be confident the light's shining and exposing us so we can be healed. So yes, I say, that's a beautiful insight, a gift. And Ren says... Okay, if you say so. Kit laughed. Trust me, I see the ugliness in myself all the time. As long as we don't head into shame and condemnation over it, but into gratitude for God's grace and forgiveness, then we're heading in the right direction. And I love that. It's a cracking book if you've not read it. I love the picture it gives, you know, and the way it says that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin, but so as to expose our deep brokenness, the places where we need to be healed, to allow us to move from darkness to light, you know, where we get to experience afresh God's grace and forgiveness in our lives. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The enemy, on the other hand, either convinces us that our sin isn't that big a deal, you know, so that we just carry on living in our brokenness, trapped by the entanglement of our sin, by patterns of behaviour that get us down. Or, if we are aware of our sin, Then he condemns us and he puts this heavy burden on us, the burden of shame. Instead of bringing our sins into the light so that we can be healed, we are uh, then tempted to keep our sins in the dark, afraid that others might see them and then reject us. In those moments, we can take on an identity of shame that moves us from just thinking I've done something wrong to the misheld identity of believing that there's something wrong with me. That is not the work of the spirit, but the enemy. That is not the identity that we're called to live out of as followers of Jesus. Let's jump back into our passage, 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to skip down to verse 9, where Peter begins to think of what is the, to tell of what is the identity that we should live out of. Says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That is the identity that we're to live out of. As the people of God who he dearly loves, we are his treasured possession. We have received his mercy and his grace. We know the arms of our father who would run out and meet us whilst we are still covered in our own mess. That is who we are as followers of Jesus. People who have moved from darkness into his wonderful light. And living a holy life is to live more and more out of that identity. And as we do this, it's like the Spirit is able to do that deep transformation work in us. He moves us towards greater and greater freedom. Freedom from the sin that Scripture says so easily entangles us. Now, I use a word like freedom here, but do so knowing that this looks totally different to how the world would define freedom. You know, freedom in our culture is often seen as the ability to do what you want, whenever you want. You know, do whatever you feel like doing, whatever it is that you desire. But what the world calls freedom, the Bible calls sin and tells us that this sin can so easily become our master. Verse 11, you know, where it says the sinful desires that have the capacity to wage war against our very souls. A different New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul, he puts it like this in one of his letters um, to the Galatian church in chapter five. It says this. Verse 16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Paul's basically saying here that in life, you basically have these two different options. Life lived in the spirit or life lived by your sinful desires. And they are the complete opposite of each other. And then Paul goes on, if you know Galatians 5 at all, he goes on to use a garden analogy as he talks about what are some of the fruit of living by your sinful desire. You know, what does your life look like when you make that decision to live by your sinful desires? And then he compares it with what, but what does your life look like if you um, follow the path of living your life by the Holy Spirit instead? I want to read, I'm going to read it from the message because it's really different language and it helps kind of refresh it for those of us that know the chapter already. So according to Paul, this is what living by your sinful nature looks like in your in our lives, what the world would call freedom. It says, Repe- repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. While some lists compare that with what Paul lists as the fruits of the Spirit-filled, holy life, of what it looks like to live a life guided by the Spirit, not by our sinful desires. He goes on to say this, this is what it looks like, affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. So what the world calls freedom, the Bible calls slavery to sin. And what the world would call slavery, or at least restriction, you know, living a godly life where you don't just do what you want. That's what the world would call slavery. The Bible calls freedom. Freedom to live the life that you were designed to live. And that is why, you know, to use the Simon Ponserby quote that we've used throughout this series, that a call to the holy life is God's best for us, not his burden for us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those lists and uh, when I read the second list, that is the life I want. That's the fruit I want to see in my life as the Holy Spirit works in me. Is that the fruit that you want to see in your life? Is that the choice that you're making to live life by the Spirit, not by your sinful desires? So does that mean we, we simply do nothing? You know, we just sit back and let the Holy Spirit work in us. Of course not. You know, whilst it is the Holy Spirit that drives the transformation process, that grows this fruit, our job is to partner with him to, uh, to create the conditions for growth. You know, the perfect soil for this fruit to grow. We, of course, have an active role to play. You know, remember how Peter started chapter two where he says this, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander. You know, he's making it clear that there is an active role here. Of course we have an active role in pursuing holiness. It's just that this is to be done in step with the Spirit, with his power doing the deep work of transformation in us. Paul Crucily in his talk last week looked at some of the things that we can begin to do in our own lives as we begin to walk this out and partner with the Spirit. He talked about thinking about the choices we make, you know, taking our thoughts captive, confessing and trading our sins. That was all in last week's talk, so go back and listen to it if you missed out. We are not to be passive in this process in any way. We are to fight against sin and the war it wages against our souls. You know, for me recently, this has looked like coming off all social media. I realised that I was filling myself with stuff that was ultimately just unhelpful, that it was producing fruits in my life of comparison, judgmentalism, ingratitude. It wasn't helping me ultimately pursue holiness in my life. It wasn't helping me grow up in my salvation. And so I've come off it. Now, I'm not saying that you need to do that. You know, you walk your own path with this. I'm not saying that's for everyone, but maybe just think about this question for a minute. What choice can you make today to more actively pursue holiness in your life? The pursuit of holiness is a beautiful thing. You know, in our services last week, there was such a sense of God's presence moving among us. When we take holiness seriously, you know, when we consecrate ourselves, you know, literally consecrate means setting yourself apart as holy. When we do that, it's like this declaration that we take the name of God seriously. we, We declare in that moment, Lord, I trust your ways. I trust that your ways are the best for my life, that I am not in control, but you are, that you know best. And as we do that, his Holy Spirit is able to move more and more freely among us. Holiness welcomes the Holy One, and the Holy One comes with all his glory and majesty and authority. But it doesn't just stop there, you know, within the church. As Jesus' bride, as the church, we are to be so consecrated to God that God's presence in us permeates us and then changes, goes out and changes the world around us. We are to be transformed to bring transformation. Let's just jump back into Peter's letter. He makes this clear in the next verse, in verse 12, that this life, this fruitful, holy life in the Spirit is to be put on display for all to see. Verse 12, he says this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, the context of him writing this letter was in a time of great persecution for the early Christians living under the Roman Empire and what he's saying here is that even though you may be accused of doing wrong, even though you may be persecuted because you're a follower of Jesus, live so well among the people around you that they will see how you live, they will see the authenticity of your faith lived out in a holy life and they will come themselves to know God and one day glorify him. Again I love how the message puts it it says verse 12 then they'll be one over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives I love that We are transformed in order to bring transformation to help others move from darkness to light And in that verse verse 12 there Peter is actually quoting his savior Jesus who he actually heard teach this very lesson on the mountainside of Galilee on the sermon of the mount recorded for us in Matthew verse 5 where it says this, you, this is what Jesus taught, you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. I mean, Peter in his letter is essentially summarizing what Jesus taught in that moment. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Now, these images of, of salt and light that Jesus uses here as he was preaching, they're such kind of evocative images, aren't they, of, of how we as followers of Jesus are to show up in the world around us, of how refreshingly different our lives are to look, uh, to look from the world around us and, and what impact this should then have. Change must start with us. It must start with the church. The salt and light must be salty and shining before the church is of benefit to the world. And, you know, in a world of the bland and the mundane, of apathy and mind-numbing entertainment and consumerism, the people of God are to be salt, to live lives of meaning and purpose. In a world of darkness, of loneliness, of despair, where people have been sold the lie that if you live your life by every desire, you'll be happy. But then are left desperately shortchanged and unfulfilled. The people of God are to be light. We are called to be a people who take the name of God seriously and to live holy lives who live differently. And as Peter says, we are to live as foreigners and aliens in this world, making our home in Jesus, not in this world. The Lord is calling us, his people, to be salt and light in this city and in this nation, to live holy lives that will look different and that will bring transformation. And the question is will we his disciples his people will we take his call to pursue holiness to live a life in step with his spirit seriously thank you